So we are closing out our Ecclesiastes series today. Uh, last week, uh, we talked about God's grace and how we're to celebrate God's grace, we're to stick with God's grace, uh, to cultivate and invest in the places where He has shown us His goodness, His mercy, and, and that we're surrounded by God's grace, to look at all of life as how is that an opportunity to uh, respond in faith and to uh, glorify the Lord with what He's placed in our lives. But for the last seven weeks, we've navigated through the various themes of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon has beautifully summarized his findings and his pursuit of meaning, significance, fulfillment, contentment uh, in everything the world has to offer. We've seen wisdom fall short, we've seen pleasure fall short, work fall short, justice, etc. And this is why he tells us that everything under the sun is vanity or meaningless or vapor. To pursue what the world values is to chase after the wind or strive after the wind. The only high notes sprinkled throughout the book are when he mentions the graces that God has shown us. He's been pretty consistent in establishing uh, God as the only source of true meaning and anything good in this world. And so we've tried to communicate the same things uh, to you guys, that everything in the world lacks meaning apart from God. But with God, he brings meaning to everything. So today we're closing out the series, um, we'll look at Solomon's ending to Ecclesiastes. Uh, in it we'll see the summation that he gave, um, that he gave us to open the book. He starts with vanity, vanity, all is vanity, and he's going to kind of bring that back. He's said it throughout and he'll say it again here at the end. We'll also see in this conclusion what our role in the world is. Since everything matters when living for God, then we matter, and so uh, what has God called us to do? Next week, we're actually kicking off a new series uh, about church memberships. So that'll begin next Sunday. It's called Believe and Belong, and so we'll look at uh, what it means to be a church member, why church membership is important, uh, and then kind of some of the beliefs uh, of uh, our church uh, that go hand-in-hand with uh, becoming a member as well. But for now, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We see right away in verse 8 that he calls us back again to chapter 1, verse 2. The opening declaration of Ecclesiastes. The theme of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Even though the world has tried to sway him with, as we read in the New Testament, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, and convince Solomon that uh, all, everything is, that true contentment is found therein, in the pleasures of the world. Solomon did his own research, right, and recorded all of it so that he could spare us uh, the folly and futility of what he went through. His warning and his encouragement to us are this. This is not the way, right? There is a better way. 
In the first part of chapter 12, Solomon has encouraged the reader to remember their creator in the days of their youth. As the preacher has continued to draw our attention and to try to draw our gaze above the sun, he gets much more pointed at the end of the book and maybe some other places in Ecclesiastes because God is the only source of meaning and fulfillment in life. Solomon encourages the reader to turn to God early in life rather than missing out for years and years on true meaning or worse yet, dying having never turned to God at all. Turn to the Lord is Solomon's charge. It serves as a a what in his instruction to us, right? If everything is meaningless, then okay, so what then, preacher? Turn to the Lord. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Today's passage, verses 8 through 14, is kind of, he kind of puts the why in there. Uh, why should we turn to the Lord? Why, what, what backs up all of this instruction that you're trying to give us? And I hope to give us a little bit of the what, some of the why um, that we see here in this passage. And the first thing I want to point out from these verses is that we have one shepherd. We have one shepherd. Solomon explains that he has put great thought into the wording and arrangement of his writings with all of his great wisdom This isn't someone who's just going to say, oh, I have all this great wisdom, and so I'm just going to jot it down. With his wisdom comes the arrangement and structure and the wording of how he communicates. And so we have in the wisdom books really beautiful poetry, and not just beautiful, but true and wise, right? And so he's said, I've I've thought, and I've arranged, and I've structured this in such a way um, so that it is best to best serve you, to honor the Lord. He's written down what he's received from God, and he's taught it to others. He says that he has taken his wisdom and not just held it to himself, right, but in a true way to honor the Lord and to bless others. He has taught this wisdom. The words he's delivered are like a shepherd's goad, which is used to prod animals and keep them in line, headed in the right direction. So Solomon is saying that his words, they might poke, they might prod, they might sting, but they're necessary for keeping us headed in the right direction, the direction that God has intended for us. Solomon also likens the word to nails. In other words, his wise collections of words stick with us. They have staying power because they ring true, and true things last. Think about a piece of advice or wisdom that maybe you've picked up throughout life and you've never forgotten it because it rings true. It's fixed like a nail. Why do these words hold such authority? the words of Solomon, the words that he's given to us, because they're given by one shepherd, right? They didn't originate from him. The one shepherd, God. Of course, there is some discussion on whether the shepherd reference here is just another name for Solomon, and he's given some different names in Ecclesiastes, but uh, as Philip Ryken points out, this is the first time that the title shepherd has appeared in Ecclesiastes, which seems to distinguish the shepherd from the preacher rather than to add another title to him. Uh, Riken goes on to point out that shepherd is one of the noble titles for God in the Old Testament, not only in Psalm 23, but also in places like Psalm 80, where he is called shepherd of Israel. So we aren't just looking at the, the fallible or things that can fail, findings of a person. Wise as he may be, we don't just say, oh, Solomon, you're so great, and whatever you come up with is what you've passed on. We're looking at the perfect, unfailing words of God Almighty. The idea that there is one shepherd, one true God, is essential to Christianity. This belief is called monotheism. Mono being one, theism, 
God-ism. <laughs> there is one God. All other gods are false gods. Monotheism is not unique to Christianity, but it is essential to Christianity. Jews and Muslims also believe there is one God. So if we're going to claim to be Christians, we need to press in a little further. We can't settle just for monotheism. We have to press into Jesus. But God tells us that he is one of one, not one of many. And Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. The Bible maintains this idea of there being one God from Isaiah to the Gospels, where Jesus quotes the Old Testament and reiterates it about himself, to 1 Corinthians, to 1 Timothy, to claim to be a Christian, to claim to believe in and follow Jesus, you can't acknowledge any gods as legitimate except for the one true God. Ephesians 4, 5 and 6 says we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Bible does not allow us to say Christianity is what works for me, but something else might work for you. It does not allow for your God is another way to heaven. And Jesus is the God that I've chosen to follow. Jesus said that he is the way, not a way. He says no one comes to the Father except through him. God has declared his exclusivity and also commanded our undivided devotion because of it. It's the first commandment given to Moses. You shall have no other gods before me or beside me. God gets to demand our full devotion because he is deserving of our full devotion. To worship or acknowledge anyone or anything else in this way is to rob God of the worship that's due him. And it's not just rude like it would be to some human dignitary. It's idolatry, right? It's not just disrespecting a person. It's disrespecting the God of the universe. The God of the Bible, the God of Solomon, is the one shepherd and the one true living God. So his words are true and lasting and authoritative. Which brings me to point number two. We have one Bible. We have one Bible. Solomon warns the reader to beware of anything that speaks beyond the sacred text, the Word of God. Scripture is the unfailing, authoritative Word of God without error. No other text is to be trusted as such. Often with statements of faith that you'll see uh, that churches post or denominations, uh, they'll often begin with a statement about the Bible rather than God. Uh, some people find that um, almost idolatrous to say that they're worshiping the Bible instead of the God of the Bible. But the Bible is often listed first because it is the source and authority that informs us of all the other beliefs about God and Jesus and man and all these end times, all these things. We know about these and form our beliefs and receive our beliefs about them from the Bible. And so we start with, here's our authority. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. How do we know who God is? From the Bible. We may all be born with a sense that there is a God, there is a higher power, there's a divine something, but we don't know His name. We don't really understand His character. We don't know how to be reconciled to Him. All of that is articulated in the Word of God. How He wants us to relate to Him, how He relates to us, how we're separated from him by our sin, how we can be reconciled to him in Jesus, how we live for him in Jesus. All of that is in the word of God. 
So even though Solomon is not referring to the whole text of the Bible as we know it, when he writes the verses we just read in Ecclesiastes, he's issuing a warning from all his wisdom that we should be wary of any text that is beyond what the one shepherd has given us. To extrapolate this principle out to the rest of God's word, I think, is only fitting because we see similar warnings in other places in Scripture. Revelation 22, 18, and 19 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of, this, of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So we are not to add to or take away from God's word. He gave us exactly what he wanted us to have. No more, no less. This is why we say that scripture is sufficient it is all we need to, as I said before, know God, learn how to live for Him, etc. David recorded in Psalm 19 that the Word of God is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. The men of God who were moved by the Spirit of God to record the words of God are consistent in reiterating the authority of Scripture because it is God's Word to us. Paul would write in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is not some collection of fairy tales, fortune cookie wisdom, greeting card well wishes, or epic fantasy fiction. These are the very words of God, the God of the entire universe, compiled for us. That's why we say the Bible has authority over the Christian's life and authority over the church. Other faiths may elevate some human clergy or other texts to the same level of authority as the Bible. But as Protestant Christians, meaning we are not Roman Catholic, we believe in something called sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. The Bible alone is the authoritative text over our lives. Solomon recognized the authority of God's word over the writings of men. In Ecclesiastes 12, 12, he warned that there is no shortage of books to be read and that you can wear yourself out studying all the books that exist and that are being written. And again, this was thousands of years ago. So consider how many more books have been written since then. Uh, this is um, not ironclad research, but just to give you a ballpark. Um, from what I could scrounge up, the, the most recent stat, for some reason, was 2010. In 2010, uh, 129,864,880 books had been written since the invention of the printing press in 1440. And it's estimated that about 2.2 million books are published each year. So we're dealing with a lot of books, right? Pretty big numbers. Solomon knew, and he said, of the making of many books, there is no end, right? He knew it was coming. And so he warned the reader, be cautious about the information you consume, the information that you allow to influence your heart and your mind. And just as I said before, if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to live for God, you have one shepherd. You have to believe that there is one true God. But you also have one Bible. So your life as a believer, as a Christian, it's not guided by astrology or self-help or Oprah, or Dr. Phil, or Dr. Oz, or Dr. Seuss, or Dr. Scholl. Try to think of some famous doctors. Dr. Spock. And even within the world of Christianity, pastors, preachers, authors should not have the final say in your life. 
The word of God should have the final say in your life. Measure everything against the truth of God's word. This becomes easier and more natural, of course, the more familiar we become with it. So read your Bible. Pray through it. Meditate on it. Put it to memory. When you're discouraged or doubting, turn to the Word of God. Remind yourself of what God has promised. When others need advice, don't just think, hmm, I wonder. Draw wisdom from the Bible. What has God said that might speak into that situation? Point them to the truth. And beware, as Solomon says, of anything beyond the one Bible. Finally, because we have one shepherd and one Bible, Solomon concludes that we have one purpose for mankind. We have one purpose The preacher writes that all has been heard, so all that's left is to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Our one purpose or job is to fear and follow God, to know him and to love him. When we see in the Bible that we're to fear God, it's it's not telling us to be scared or frightened, right? It's telling us to revere and respect God for who he is. Recognize that he is all-powerful and all-knowing and perfectly holy and righteous and just. Now, in that, there is an element of, that's a little scary, right? I know what you could do to me. I know what uh, you have the power to do. Uh, I know who I am in relation to that. And so there is some not frightenedness, scared-wise, but just this respect for the power, the knowledge, the otherness, right, of who God is. To know God is not to be cowering in fear, It's to feel love, right, in awe and respect. Solomon has spent so much time and effort and so many resources on pursuing fulfillment in everything under the sun and continued to tell us in detail how everything has come up meaningless apart from God. But he concludes that because God is real, because God exists, everything matters, and our duty, our role, is to follow him. This is why pleasure, work, wisdom, justice, etc. are not ultimate things. They're good things that fall under the rule and reign of God. So we're to recognize God as supreme and divine and then all the other things fall in line behind our devotion to him. If God exists and is who the Bible says he is, he gets to determine what life is all about. Solomon recognizes this because Solomon is wise. It didn't matter matter how much clout Solomon had as king. It didn't matter how much wisdom or money or earthly authority he had. He knew that the only thing that made life worth living, despite what Waylon Jennings might have said, was following God. This is our one purpose in life. This is why Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The greatest commandment lines up with Solomon's findings on what the whole duty of man is. Our one purpose. And when we live outside of this purpose, we don't flourish. We aren't fulfilled. We operate in meaninglessness, always grasping for but never finding contentment. That's what Solomon has spent these chapters doing. These are all the places that the world offers fulfillment and contentment through. But it's all to point us to someone above the sun. And so he's given us this context over and over again that everything that we experience and try to press into and try to say this is the end rather than a means to worship God, it will fall short. It will leave you feeling empty. It will not satisfy. 
But because God is real, because God exists, because God is who he is, all of this stuff does matter. And we can worship God through it. We can see it as grace. It can point us to the one who allowed us to experience all these things. So he's telling us throughout all of this and all of his wisdom, again, his, his warning to us, his encouragement to us, don't chase meaning in the things of this world where all is vanity or vapor, but turn to Jesus and step into your one purpose in life. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you for... Uh, Again, just a time and a place to gather. Um, we pray, God, that our, our church would, would be, continue to be, um, and would go on to be and be known as a, a place, uh, a welcoming, safe place where people can come and experience your love, your grace, where people are pointed to uh, you. God, we pray that you would continue to work in us. We pray that as we lift high the name of Jesus and exalt Jesus, that he would draw people to himself. We pray, God, that you would use us for this purpose that we've just read about, to know you, to love you, that you would find us faithful, that you would find us obedient. We pray, God, that we would recognize you as the one true God and not try to worship anything or anyone else. I pray, God, that we would know the worth of your word in our lives, the power of your word. The Bible tells us that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we're not going to find that kind of life-changing truth and wisdom in what the world offers. We may see reflections of your truth. We may see shadows of your truth but you have given us your very words to show us who you are, to show us who we are, to show us who we can be in Christ. And so God, I pray that we would be a people who love the word of God, who, who know the word of God, who read the word of God, who speak it, that who, people who share it, just as we read about Solomon not keeping his wisdom to himself, but sharing and teaching others from his findings. May we be people who encourage others and point others, instruct others. Now we pray for uh, our families who are still uh, recovering and not well enough to be with us, that you would just bring them back to strength and bring them back to uh, fellowship with us in person. Pray that you would encourage them, heal them. Yeah, we pray that you would grow our church family, that you would uh, send people, that you would send us out to find people, but you would also just let people know uh, as you work in their hearts and prepare the way, God, that we would be faithful also to go and to invite, to share. We believe, God, that you want uh, great uh, gospel transformation to take place uh, here on this campus and through this church, in this community. Uh, and so, God, we just pray. We pray for the opportunities, and we pray that we would be found faithful to be obedient, to take up those opportunities. Um, and we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.